Good morning, uh, John Safari. It is it's great to see you guys. And I, I mean that literally because I thought it was spring break, 600 people on mission trips, so just be me and the 12 disciples this morning. So I mean, the fact that you guys showed up is awesome uh, and it's great to have, have you and, and, and love it. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter nine. We've been to Hebrews now for a while in our series called The Race. And today we're gonna look at verses 15 through 18. And I never like to front load my message with a ton of announcements, but it's an important week, Holy Week, so we got a lot going on. Of course, Easter, Sunday, next Sunday. We're expecting a, a great day. Uh, I do have an ask for you. Uh, we're gonna have overflow rooms if people are late or need extra seats, all, all that kind of deal. But it would really help if you could take as few cars as possible to church. I know some of your families bring like eight cars every single Sunday. But here's, if I could just ask you guys to ride together like one Sunday out of the 52, that would be awesome. So next Sunday, we'll create some space for, for people to come and have a place to park. That would be amazing. I do wanna ask that you pray this week for all of those who are out on short-term trips. Again, close to 600, six different trips. And we wanna be praying that God uses them. I'm praying that God uses us this week to be sharing the gospel. Uh, you can see the keychains that are building out there in the atrium, and if you wanna fill out another one, uh, we'll have those at the back of the room for several, several Sundays, so we'd love for you to do that. And I can't begin without just at least saying something publicly about the horrors uh, that we saw in Nashville this last week. And from what I read, we've had 128 mass shootings in America since the beginning of the year if by mass shooting we mean more than four casualties uh, in each incident. So there's been more shootings than there have been days. And there's a lot of streams that go into this evil river, uh, whether it's mental health issues, uh, accessibility to certain weapons, uh, just a culture of violence, and I, th I think what we're seeing is truly demonic. I, I don't think that the people that are doing it are doing it in the name of Satan. But I, I do believe in a very deceptive way we're seeing um, just the, the vestiges of, of evil and sin in our world today. And, and it's in light of even the horrors of, of what happened this week that we need to be praying. We need to stay hopeful in the things of Jesus. Doesn't mean we stick our head in the sand. I, I've been to meetings this week talking about security for you as a church, security for our school, uh, conversations you don't wanna have but you have to have as we go forward. But it's such an important time to be thinking about what this passage in Hebrews is all about. I would, there's a question I want us to dive into today. It's a question that maybe you've asked before, maybe you haven't. I don't know where all you are with, with Jesus. But here's a question I want us to think about today. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And of course, there I'm camping out on the word have to. I mean, if, if God's an all-powerful God, couldn't he have just looked at the brokenness of our world, the evil of our world, and just snapped his fingers and said, all right, we'll just kind of get a do-over. If God can do anything, couldn't he just kind of wave his hand, do a little magic trick, and make everything right again? Why is it that Jesus had to come? Why is it that he had to die? Why did he have to die on a cross? A lot of people know that Jesus died on a cross. Not many of them actually know why, do you? 
Some people object to even the idea that God would require some kind of sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice, in order to to make us right with God. Christopher Hitchens, famed atheist, said, the doctrine of vicarious redemption through human sacrifice is utterly immoral. In a book called The Lost Message of Jesus, notice how these authors speak about the cross, this idea of Jesus dying for us. Notice how they label it. They said, "How, how have we come to believe that at the cross, this God of love suddenly decided to vent his anger and wrath on his own son. And then they say, the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. That's how they think about the idea of Jesus dying on a cross. It isn't cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense that he has not even committed. And then they ask this question, is God a cosmic child abuser? Many people can't stand the idea of thinking of of God requiring some kind of sacrifice like this, or even God dying. There are religions around the world, I think about those in the the, uh, Muslim world, who hold high regard for Jesus as a prophet, but cannot conceive that God would come and die for us. How can he be an all-powerful God and die? Yet, as we read the pages of the New Testament, as we read the Gospels, as we read Hebrews, as we have been for months now, we see that at the center of Jesus' ministry is his bloody death on a cross. Yes, there's a resurrection. Yes, there's an ascension. But at the core is the cross. The Gospel writers don't gore it up. Sometimes they simply say, and he was crucified but it's because they didn't have to. Many object to this idea. Voltaire said this, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. And I'll give him credit for this. It is a bloody religion. Why why all the blood? In today's passage in Hebrews chapter nine, we're gonna see many references to blood. For those of you who haven't been with us, it's worth just repeating why this book exists in particular and what the author's trying to do. His, his motive in writing this letter to the Hebrews is assurance. From what we can tell, the majority of his congregation are people that grew up in Jewish households. They've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're wondering, have we made a mistake? What about the temple? What about the animal sacrifices? What about the rituals of what we would now call the old covenant? Don't don't we still have to do all that stuff to be right with God? Is Jesus enough? And the writer to the Hebrews is writing with assurance to say, yes, Jesus is enough. I want us to look at verse 15 today, which some would say is the core of the argument of not only this chapter, but even, even the letter as a whole as it summarizes who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Hebrews 9, verse 15. If you would stand together, I'd I'd like to read this one verse. Hebrews 9, verse 15. This is what God says through this human author. For this reason, he, meaning Jesus, 
is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. You see there, in a way, three elements of who Jesus is. He's the mediator of a new covenant. His death has accomplished something. What is it? It's given them promise of an eternal inheritance. So that's what we want to think about today. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word and we look at this really pivotal chapter, I pray that, Lord, your voice would be the loudest in our ears and in our hearts that we might dwell on the death of Jesus so that we would understand the gravity of sin and the amazing grace that comes from you. Lord, help us do that. We'll pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys have a seat. So we're gonna talk about blood today, so I thought I'd just give you a little fun facts about blood. For instance, uh, human beings, we have blood, uh, I think red and blue blood. Some animals have green blood. They're different colors of blood. You may not know that. There's different types of blood. Does anyone about know how, how much blood you have in your body? It's about a gallon, about a gallon. So the next time you go to buy milk, you think of your blood. You're welcome. In fact, there are some traces of minerals in your blood that come together and they form what might be called gold Believe it or not, you have gold in your blood. I read that on the internet, it has to be true. There's gold in your blood. When the Bible talks about blood, it's not merely talking about the substance itself. Even Jesus' blood, as if it's some magic solution and if we could just get a vial of Jesus' blood, we could accomplish all these things with his blood. No, blood is a symbol of something. Leviticus 17 captures what blood is all about. 1711, this is what the Bible says. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. A factual statement. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Now this is really important. In the Bible, the value of the blood is not that it gives life, though it does but it is the removal of life by the emptying of that blood in a sacrifice that is what we are to remember. When we talk about the blood of Jesus, we sing about the blood of Jesus. We're not singing about the actual substance flowing through his veins. We're thinking about the symbolic nature of him giving his life for the atonement of those that would call on him. We're answering the question today, why did Jesus have to die? According to Hebrews, it's a question a lot of us have not thought a lot about. But I believe this text gives us several reasons why, and they're worth reflecting on, especially as we go into this holy week. But number one, why did Jesus have to die? According to Hebrews, number one, to initiate a new covenant. To initiate a new covenant. Covenant. Now we read in the beginning of verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. We've talked a lot about covenants. And then skip down to verse 16 and 17. For where there is a covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid 
only when people are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Some of your translations may switch the word from covenant to will. And that's because it's the same word in the Hebrew, but it can be used in different ways. Now, I think he's talking about a covenant, and we'll get there in just a second, but most of us didn't grow up thinking about covenants, but we do know what a will is. Many of you, probably most of you, have some type of a will that in the event of your death, your assets will be distributed in a certain way based on how you choose to distribute them. And it's interesting that we even use the language of executing a will, meaning that death has to take place for a will to go into effect. I think about the story of this couple who went to get their will done as a couple, and they're driving home, and these are the kind of conversations you have when you have been thinking about your death and what's gonna happen in light of your death. And the husband was driving, he was talking to his wife, said, you know, honey, this is kind of awkward, but I'll, I'll just say it. If, if I am to die before you, I don't want you to be lonely. It's, it's okay for you to be remarried. She kind of shook her head. He said, and we have these two nice cars, so there's no use in one of the cars not being driven. So if he wants to drive my car, it's okay for him to drive my car. And if he is to go into the garage, he's gonna see tools there and he can use my tools. And if he wants to use my fishing rod, that's fine. My, my lawnmower, that's fine. I, they're just, my golf clubs are where I draw the line, honey. If you could just sell those, it, it would really be better for me. And she looked over and said, don't worry, honey, he's left-handed. <laughs> Man, I love cheesy preacher stories. The point is, look, all that doesn't happen until you die. Now, here's the point that the author is making in Hebrews. He's saying in the Old Covenant, you had what were called blood covenants. And the clearest example is found in, in Genesis uh, chapter 14. And God makes a covenant with Abram, and it's about land. And he tells Abram, I want you to take a couple animals, I want you to sacrifice them, I want you to cut them in two. And then God says, that he is gonna pass through it with a torch. And all that's like, what? that's so weird to us. But what God is saying is that the promise I'm making to you, Abram, about this land is sealed through the death and the covenant that we are making. In fact, the word covenant literally means to cut. God cuts a covenant with his people through the death of something. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that in the same way that you believe that the first covenant came with blood, Jesus is giving his blood. And he gives this illustration, verse 18 through 22. For where there is a covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when people are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, According to the law, he took the blood and the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood and almost all things are cleansed with blood according to the law and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In the Old Testament, the people were rescued from slavery in Egypt, 
And then God gives the covenant to them. And that's when he gives the 10 commandments and all the ordinances and the keeping of the Sabbath and all. And you can read all this in Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23, and 24. And so what happens in 24 is he tells Moses and the people to come to this mountain to worship him. But only Moses can go up into the presence of God on top of the mountain. So at the foot of the mountain, he and these 70 elders, they build these, these 12 stones, these memorial stones of God making this covenant with the people. And then, and then these animals are sacrificed and then Moses takes the blood of those bulls and he starts to sprinkle the blood on the people. Imagine that splattering across your cheek, the smell of that bull's blood. And then he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the covenant. And it's a way of saying that this first covenant God made with the people, rescuing them from slavery, was sealed with blood. And the reason he's bringing that up in Hebrews is to say that in the same way, this better covenant that comes in Christ has been sealed, not with the blood of animals, but with the blood of Jesus. If Jesus had not died, this covenant would not have been executed. So one of the reasons Jesus had to die was so this new covenant could be initiated which is why we need to think deeply about the cross of Christ and what was accomplished. All right, that's the first reason, to initiate a new covenant. The second reason, why did Jesus have to die? Number two, and we're gonna use the language of Hebrews here, to put away sin. To put away sin. In verse 15, again, the central verse in the middle, it said that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant. Sin is something that we don't think enough about. The fact is, in the Bible, there are several different words that make up our concept of sin. There are five Greek words, I think, that make up sin in the New Testament. I won't give you all those Greek words. But the concepts are things like sin means uh, to miss the mark. Think about a bullseye. You don't hit it all the time, you sin. Sin means breaking the law of God. Sin means acting in unrighteousness. Sin means transgressing God's law. There's an old school word. What's it mean? I mean, think about if, if God draws a circle to say, hey, this is my will for you. This is where my flourishing happens in your life. If you walk in this will, th- I'm gonna create this circle around you. And if you trans, which means to go across, if you transgress that circle, you get out of that circle, you have transgressed the law and you have sinned. We live in a broken world of sin. You might even call it a systemic world of sin. That sin affects everything. And yes, it's true that we are victims of sin. It shows itself in a lot of the diseases that we get. It shows itself in horrific shootings like we saw this last week. It shows itself in a myriad of ways that we are victims of sin. But here's where we need to be really careful because we are not only victims of sin, we are also perpetrators of sin. In other words, we contribute to the sinful system in which we live. We don't get to simply be the victims of sin. No, we are also the reason for sin, that we are sinners living in a sinful world. Now, notice what he's gonna say about Christ and what he has accomplished and what it means for us with sin. Look at verses 23 through 26. 
Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made by hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, by the way, I love that phrase. Now at the consummation of the ages, he has been revealed to, here's our language, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When the original audience heard this, most of whom grew up as Jewish, they would have thought immediately about the Day of Atonement. Most of us didn't grow up Jewish. We don't think about the Day of Atonement. So we have to recast that story. The Day of Atonement was that high holy day in the Jewish calendar when the high priest would go before God in the most holy place and offer a sacrifice for your sin, for my sin. And what he would also do on that day, he would take two goats. Do you remember this? It's in Leviticus and all those verses that you skip over in your Bible reading plan. That's why you need to know the Old Testament to understand who Jesus is. But these two goats he would bring before him and he would do with one goat, he would kill the goat And then presumably with the blood of that goat on his hands, he would go to the second goat and as a symbolic way of saying, all of our sins are placed on you, we sometimes call it the scapegoat, he would put the blood on this goat and then they would take the goat into the wilderness and what was happening here was symbolic. One goat was the means of their forgiveness, his blood. The other goat was the effect of the forgiveness that the sins were taken away. What he's saying about Jesus is really amazing here because he's saying that Jesus here is both the victim and he is the priest. Jesus' blood is the means by which we are saved and Jesus' death on the cross takes our sins away from us that he might put away sin. Jesus Christ is our substitute. This is so important, so important. Think about this. The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, is it not? It's saying, God, I can do my life better than you can do my life. I know what I'm doing better than you know what I'm doing. When I act out on these certain desires, they feel good to me, therefore I am substituting myself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We need to think and dwell so deeply on the fact that Jesus has died for us. I love Isaiah 53, which I think is such a beautiful portrayal of the ministry of Jesus. And in verses four through six, I have the New Living Translation. I I love the way it captures it. This is what it says about the ministry of Jesus. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God a punishment for his own sins. I mean, that's why people died on crosses, right? Their sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. 
all of us, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet, yet, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Isn't that the power of the gospel? That your sin put Jesus on a cross. And yet, because he died in your place, he is able to put away sin. I love what one theologian says about the blood of Christ. He says, the blood of Christ is the metaphor for the sacrificial love of God. And I think one of the reasons that we don't think enough about the cross and we don't appreciate it enough is because we think so lightly about sin. We think it's not a big deal. We think God winks at it. We say, well, who doesn't do it? I mean, and I think that's part of the deception. We live in such a sinful world that a lot of us sin without even knowing that we sin because it's just so normal. Which is why we needed Jesus. And it's why this third reason of why he had to die is so important. I'm gonna use a biblical but theological word that a lot of you probably don't know or have never used, but I wanna teach it to you because it's so important to understand the ministry of Jesus. And here's the third reason why Jesus had to die. Number three, to propitiate, that's the word, propitiate God's holy wrath. To propitiate God's holy wrath. We'll leave that slide up there for just a little bit longer so you can look at the word propitiate as you write it down. Now, to get at this, go to verse 27 and 28. He says, verse 27, and just as it is destined for people to die once and after this comes judgment, stop here. Maybe you've heard that before. Somebody's sharing Christ with you and says, hey, you need to know something. It is destined for you to die once. In other words, everyone's gonna die and you're gonna have to face judgment. And that's true. But they miss what's gonna happen in verse 28, which is the point of sharing that. Verse 28 is this. So Christ also, so let's compare and contrast here. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, in other words, he died, but here's what's different about it. He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. I love that phrase, those who eagerly await the coming of Christ. Do you eagerly await the coming of Christ? But see, we also miss this because there's the Day of Atonement is here again. You're going, how's the Day of Atonement in that? Well, remember what I told you last week about this tent that the high priest would go into and it had two sections in it? And he would go in there with a sacrifice and only the high priest could go behind the veil into the most holy place. And so you as an observer, you didn't know what was happening behind that veil. And you hoped, you just hoped that that priest was not a hypocrite. You hoped that he wasn't a liar. You hoped that he had confessed all his sins before the Lord. Because the great riddle of the Bible is this. How do you get unholy things into the presence of a holy God? And what if this priest is unholy? What's he going to do? What if, what if our sins aren't atoned for in this high holy day in fact, tradition tells us they would tie a rope onto the priest's foot so that if he were to die and God would strike him dead in his presence, they could pull his body out of the most holy place. But imagine the emotion when after he's been in there, you see 
him move the veil, and he comes out. And you know that yet again, your sins have been atoned for by God. And for one more year, God has done what is needed to do to make you right with him ceremonially. Now, here's what's amazing about Jesus. What he's saying is this, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, and when he was buried, and when he was raised on the third day, as we'll celebrate at Easter, but then he ascended, he went into the most holy place, the heavenly temple. But there's coming a day when he will come out of the holy place back to be with us on this earth. And you know what it says? That we eagerly await him. Do you eagerly await the second coming of Christ? That's the good news of the gospel. But what's happening in that moment is this theological concept which is so important to us thinking rightly about our relationship with God. And it's this word, propitiation. What does that word mean, propitiation? Let me give you a definition. Propitiation is a two-part act. There's two things that happen. Two-part act that involves both the bearing of sin to appease God's wrath and in turn being reconciled to him. So propitiation is not just appeasing the wrath of God, but it's also being reconciled to this God. Now, a lot of us give a little stiff arm, go, hey, oh, the, the wrath of God. I thought, you know, Jesus is love and God's all loving. And we need to think about the wrath of God. I, I think there are three big ideas that come with propitiation. I don't have these in your notes or anything, but just, you need to know this. Number one, your sin arouses the wrath of God. Now, when we think about human wrath, we think about the fact that sometimes we can fly off the handle, sometimes we can have a temper, sometimes we struggle with anger. I've seen you struggle with anger. It's called the parking lot at JFBC every Sunday. And it's, it comes and goes, and you, you try to, God's anger, his wrath is not like your wrath. It is not reckless. God never flies off the handle. God never says, I'm so sick of these people. What are we gonna, never. God's wrath is his settled antagonism against sin. He can't stand sin. He, you know what? He can't stand what sin does to you. He watches your life and your decisions, and he can't stand it. And because he is holy and you are unholy, we have a problem. And this is where we start to get to the gospel. A lot of old religions practice propitiation. This would be that kind of second big idea that propitiation is required. But a lot of, a lot of old pagan religions practice it. I, I remember thinking about this, though I didn't know the word propitiation, man, I can't even say it now. When I watched uh, the movie Indiana Jones growing up. Anybody watch Indiana Jones? Right, you can learn a lot of lessons about Jesus, Indiana Jones, all right? So, and I remember this one scene, I forget which movie it was, someone's gonna tell me after the service, but there was this one scene where there was this God that they had to offer a sacrifice to. And so there's this whole sea of slaves and they, they pull this innocent guy up. And, and you may remember this scene, this priest is sitting there and he's saying some kind of chant and he reaches down into this guy's chest and he 
pulls out a heart. It's amazing, right? And it's, and it, sorry, kids. And this, his, his heart is beating in his hands and he's saying all these things and he pushes the, the man off and, in, into the, you know, the pit or whatever. And, and that's what propitiation was. Angry gods who demand a human sacrifice. That is not the God of the Bible. Because what's amazing about our God is he doesn't require you to do anything. He came to do it for you. That's the goodness of Jesus. That he came to do it for you. He requires propitiation and he provides the means for propitiation. Jesus and the Father are not divided They are one, lockstep together with what was happening. And and I love what 1 John 4.10 says. You want to know what love is? Here's what it says. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what love is. That instead of God requiring you to pay the penalty for your sin, he did it for you. Isn't that good? And, and I told you there were three things about propitiation. This, this is, I guess, number three. Jesus is the only one who can do it. Last week, I uh, read the lyrics of a hymn by William Cooper entitled, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. It's an old hymn. And a lot of times today, we don't sing that. It just sounds kind of weird to sing about blood, and we don't know what to do with that. Hopefully after today, you see just the power of thinking about the death of Christ. It's interesting that when William Cooper wrote that song, he was going through a time of depression. Maybe that's some of you today. He was having panic attacks so interesting that out of some of the dark moments of our life burst forth the light of Jesus. And he writes this beautiful hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. They lose all their guilty stains. But I, I love this other verse that he wrote. And I think it captures so much of what's at the heart of Hebrews chapter nine. He says this of Jesus, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. And I don't know about you, but I I eagerly await the second coming of Christ where I will be fully and finally saved to sin no more. That's the power of the gospel. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never been forgiven of your sin, then make today the day. For those of you that have, would this holy week be a special week, not of Easter egg hunts and golf matches and all that stuff, and we're gonna do all that, I know, but Would you reflect deeply, deeply on how much God loves you that he would send his son to be the propitiation for your sins? Father in heaven.
Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this amazing love. Thank you that you dealt with your own wrath by sending yourself so that we could be reconciled to you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. It's in your name we pray. Amen.